Hey there, church family. We are so grateful that you've joined us for week six of our Transform series in the book of Romans. It's been a wild ride so far, but to be honest, we're just kind of scratching the surface of this book. You're going to need your Bibles. You're going to need a notebook, and uh, we're going to need your attention because we're covering 21 verses today. But before we do so, let me just go ahead and pray for a second that God's will might be done in our time today. Um, Holy Spirit, we just invite you. We just ask that you would be in the middle of our thinking. We ask that you would, you would fill our hearts. And uh, God, we just ask that you would eliminate any distractions so that we can just give our attention and our affection fully to you in this moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We left off last week with Pastor Dave laying out the reality of this present and this future adoption that we receive as children of God and the confidence that we can have as we approach um, the, the safety of the arms of our father or our Abba or our daddy. And, and, and we have a God who, who has stepped in and chosen to adopt us. And along with being his, his sons and his daughters, Dave talked about how we also get to participate in a royal inheritance. And Romans chapter eight continues to just be packed with these theological truths. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about Romans 8. He says, Romans is the brightest gem of all. Someone has said that in the whole of scripture, the brightest and most lustrous and flashing stone or collection of stones is in the epistle to the Romans. And that of these chapter 8 is the brightest gem in the cluster. The most moving chapter in Romans is Romans chapter 8. Wow, no pressure here. John Piper says, memorize Romans chapter eight and make it the charter and the voyage of your life. So scholars throughout history have placed huge value on what we discover in this chapter. So let's begin, pull out your Bibles, chapter eight, verse 18. It says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The question in this text is this, is suffering in this world worth it? Is it all really worth it? And I would say that the secular response or the secular answer would be no. Why, why experience discomfort? What's the point of that? A secular view of suffering sees suffering as simply an inconvenience and something to be avoided, something to, to eliminate as much as possible. But Paul answers the question, is suffering worth it? With a, with a rhetorical and an emphatic yes. In fact, our present sufferings are not worth even comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. They're not even on the same playing field. Paul is saying, if you know where you're headed in the future, you won't even entertain the idea that your current problems and pains aren't worth it. Your pain and your problems serve a purpose. But let me stop there for a second. It's always difficult talking about suffering, and it's why I want to approach this topic a little bit more like a scalpel than like a machete, right? The, the reason it's difficult is because, um, to, why it's difficult to talk about suffering is because we, we, we run the risk of belittling suffering. My point here is not to downplay or to belittle suffering as, at all to say that suffering um, is not all that bad. Some of you, if I'm being honest, have experienced pain and suffering that is unimaginable. And I see you, I hear you, I understand that. Some of you have been through the absolute thick of it. And my heart is not to downplay 
pain or, or suffering, but rather to elevate God's role and God's promises within those pains and sufferings. My, my goal is to shed light on his glory and his role as he walks with you through pain and suffering in this world. When Paul says that our present sufferings can't be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us, he isn't saying your suffering isn't all that bad. Rather, he is magnifying the glory of God. Is suffering difficult? Is, is the pain unbearable? God's glory is even more severe and even more powerful. When you measure and weigh up suffering and the glory of God, they are incomparable. They aren't even on the same scale. The light of Christ always, always, always outshines the darkest of depths in this world. Tim Keller says it this way. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrow, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. He also put it this way, Jesus lost all of his glory so that we can be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound and nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so that we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you, which is being cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. He says, a lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond, and the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into someone gorgeous. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it from his personal experience. He says, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I did upon the bed of pain. Experiencing struggle for Christ does something in our lives that comfort could never do. Experiencing struggle as we pursue Christ does something in our faith that comfort could never, ever do. The suffering of Jesus on the cross was absolutely unbearable, but it was met with power and with victory over sin and death. If you think about it, central to the way of Jesus is a symbol. You know what that symbol is? Probably, it's a cross, right? The symbol is a cross. And today the cross might symbolize peace or hope and, and be worn as a necklace or like a cool bumper sticker or something. But in the ancient world, this was a symbol for pain and death and suffering. But we know that the pain and the death and the suffering that the cross ushered in, it wasn't the end. We know that. We as followers of Jesus, we too have to bear a cross, but we know as we step into that, that it is not the end. We can now, we, we now have hope that, that we anchor ourselves on this hope because of what we see in the horizon, what we see in the coming future. We can willingly suffer in these present times. What does that look like? I think this is what Paul is saying is, it looks like carrying burdens. It looks like standing up for injustice. It looks like sacrificing popularity. It looks like saying no to the things that Jesus says no to. It looks like saying yes to working hard to care for your neighbor and for the orphan. We need to be people who embrace these difficulties, not shy away from them. We cannot be Christians whose faith crumbles as soon as it, something becomes inconvenient. And let me just say, it is worth it. It is worth it because the glory to come far outweighs the darkness at hand. Tim Keller goes on to say this, there is a purpose to our suffering 
And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. Let's continue in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Keller says, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we put together a good life, no matter how hard we've worked to, to be healthy and wealthy and comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. <laughs> That's the world that we live in. We see in this passage that creation was subjected or opened up to frustration or disorder because of sin entering this world. But we see that when God subjected, this, um, subjected us to frustration due to sin, he did so in a word that I want you to underline, hope. He did so in hope. He did so keeping in mind that he was going to redeem and liberate creation from bondage and decay that creation invited in through sin. Friends, you, do you know what this is? This is the gospel. This message right here is the gospel. Think about it. A frustrated, chaotic, disoriented group of people set free and healed and set in right relationship as sons and daughters of God. That is good news right here. That is why suffering in this present moment is made possible. We can all suffer through difficulties when the vision for the end is so glorious and colossal. Like think about athletes or, or business owners or missionaries, the vision they have or the end goal or the telos that they have in mind, it causes them to make some crazy sacrifices, right? It causes them to wake up early, causes them to stay up late. They study, they practice, they invest. The same is true with our faith, but on like completely different scale. This is one of the ways that we are transformed when we anchor our lives in the hope of freedom from bondage. When we do so, we aren't simply enduring pain, we are running towards glory. We aren't just buckling up and enduring, we are running towards the hope that we have because of Christ Jesus. The life of a follower of Jesus is not one of simply tolerating pain, but it's one of running towards the promised glory and the promised liberation that is here now and will fully be ours in the end. That is our hope, friends. Be reminded of that truth. So the question that I have for you is, what type of bondage or decay are you in the thick of right now because of the frustrated world? I know the sufferings you are up against right now are, are no joke. Like, it's not fun. COVID, financial hardships, cancer, lust, greed, disunity, one thing after the next, whether they are things happening from poor decisions that you've made or just a result of the frustrated world, what does God intend to do with these? God, where are you? What is, what is your intentions? How is this gonna end? Friends, he intends to redeem you from it. It's a promise. He intends to redeem you. Let's listen to this next section and as Paul continues. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Friends, we are in a worldwide 
a nationwide, an individual groan. Wouldn't you agree? Maybe you've been groaning a little bit more than normal, like, oh, again, something. Are you kidding me? You all have these individual groans of pain and frustration and sadness and hurt. Your world has been turned upside down, finances, careers, school, sickness, heartbreak. We are all too familiar with these groans that, that the scriptures are talking about. And not only does the world groan, but those of us who have the spirit have an inward groan. And the spirit is groaning and longing for relief within us. The definition of groaning is, is a deep, inarticulate sound in response to pain or despair. You'd be like, man, that's a great definition for 2020, right? But the spirit is there with us. The spirit is in it with us. In this verse, Paul points, points us to one thing that the sons of God have and the one thing that we are, are waiting eagerly for that we do not yet have. And one of the things that we have is this. We have the first fruits of the spirit. The first fruits of of an incoming harvest were literally the first batch. They were a foretaste of what's to come. They were like, okay, this is, this is the first harvest. Let's get a taste for what, we, what we're gonna see in, in, the, in the near future. So what is the foretaste that we're currently experiencing? Currently, if you look at verse 10, the, the spirit is making us internally alive, right? The spirit is giving us gradual and internal freedom from the effects of sin and death and slowly making us more like Christ. You can also see that in verse 29. But this is only the first fruits. Like this is just a taste of the complete and total freedom from the effects of sin um, and death in our bodies. Th- this, will, this will come only when we have what we currently do not have yet and the thing that we wait eagerly for. And that is the adoption, of, the adoption as sons and the redemption of our physical bodies. How many of you are stoked for the redemption of your physical body. Some of you are like groaning right now as you're sitting in your chair or whatever it is. You're like, oh man, I'm excited for this physical body redemption. You know what I'm saying? But how can Paul, this is unique, tell us in verse 15, as, as, Paul, as Dave talked about last week, how can he say, you've already been adopted and, it, 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 and, and then now say, you will be adopted and your body will be redeemed. Well, I would say that it means that though we are legally adopted in this moment, we have not yet received the fullness of family resemblance that happens over time. Like we are adopted and we are fully family members, but we are growing into our new family likeness. Paul is always writing on this now and not yet tension. He always talks as if it's a reality now because it is, but in the future, it will be more complete. And I think the point is this, live like it's fully true now as it's being worked out over time to completion. One day, our physical bodies will be redeemed. They will be resurrected. The the physical groans we experience today will be done away with. I wanna point your attention to Philippians 3 verse 21. You might be familiar with this. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So friends, because we know that's happening, we know that's on the horizon, we know that's coming, we are passionately waiting. We are a passionate group of people waiting with eagerness, spreading the news for the day that our present suffering is done away with as our bodies are resurrected as Jesus has promised. We know that our best days are ahead of us and our sufferings that will one day cease and they will only be a mere memory or a mere thought that are completely behind us. We wait eagerly, we wait patiently 
knowing that the pain will pass and, and that this life is not all there is. We look forward to the day when C.S. Lewis memorably put it this way. He says, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess. Dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course a smaller scale, his own boundless power and and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but this is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. This passage is the end of Paul's um, answer to the implicit question in eight, chapter eight, verses 17 and 18. How can a Christian face suffering? How can we face temptation? And how can we do so with overwhelming confidence and deep assurance that, that all this strife is more than worthwhile. Well, let's move on to verse 26. It says this, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So 26 begins, in the same way, in the same way as what? in the same way the Spirit helps us, in the same way that hope helps us, in the same way that we anchor ourselves in hope and that, and that gives us vision for the future, the Spirit also helps us. He, he does so by helping us in our prayers. There are times when we just don't know what we ought to pray for, when we find ourselves wanting to pray, but we're like, God, I'm out of words. We might be facing deep personal loss or, or wrestling with a life-changing decision or confronting our own sin or overwhelmed with, man, I got this new homeschool thing going on. We've got election conversations that are overwhelming. You fill in the blank. But hear this, when human vocabulary proves insufficient, the language of the Spirit does not. When we do not have the words, the Spirit does, and he intercedes. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with, with groans that words cannot express, and they're in the will of God. Praise Jesus for that. When we feel too weak to act like the children of God, con confidently approaching our Abba, the Spirit helps us. He's there, you know, when you're, when you're uh, weightlifting, all you guys out there. No? Okay. But, and he's there like, come on, come on, helping us along the way. You got this, you got this. And he, he intercedes with the will of the Father in order to help us along the way. When we feel we have no words to pray, we do not need to feel like we cannot pray at all because the Spirit is with us. We need help. And the Spirit helps us. Do you need some help today? Let me just say the Spirit is there to help you and his home address is you. This section brings me, I've got to say so much comfort because there's so many times when I don't know what to say, when I don't know what to utter. And that's why I just groan and I believe that God is in that with me and the Spirit is praying for me. Verse 28 famously says this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For, the, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son. And he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What we have here is the most classic cop coffee cup verse ever. Might be on a cup of coffee, like the 
like the most classic, next to probably the most argued verse in scripture. So this should be fun. Let me clarify as we begin with this one. All things are not good. The scripture is not saying, man, all things, they'll eventually be, all things are not good. It it would be mockery to say that all things are good. The, The death of a child is not good. Cancer is not good. Drug addiction is not good. Disunity is not good. Hatred is not good. Lust, you guessed it, not good. But the Bible says we know that all things work together for the good to those that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Think of it in this way. In the chemistry of the cross, God took things that in and of themselves are absolutely horrible. They're bad. And he put them together and they turned out for the result of the most glorious good. The, the irony of the cross is that the most ultimate evil was even worked out for the good of the world. Can you believe that? How can that be? I th- think about it in, in terms of like the chemistry of table salt. For, for those of you who don't know, like table salt is made up of both sodium and chloride, but by themselves, sodium is a deadly poison. Chloride is, is a deadly poison. Put them together, you have table salt. It flavors food and it's actually, it's actually important and necessary for human life. We cannot live without it in our system. So God can take things that are bad and put them in the crucible of his wisdom and love and he works all these things for good, and he gives us the the glorious and wonderful promise that he will do so. It is a guarantee, it's a stamp, it's a promise. I know these things are bad, but I have something up my sleeve. I have the power, I did it with Jesus, and I can do it in your circumstance. We know that we have victory over sin and over Satan, but this verse in Romans actually teaches us that we also have current victory even over our circumstances. We have victory over our circumstances. That are, God is going to redeem the things that have happened and are going to happen to us. It says that all things work together for the good of those who love him. If you look up the Greek word for all, it means some. No, it means all, Right? Circle that, all things, even the worst of things can be reconstructed and redeemed and repurposed to be a God story. Some of you are recipients of that exact truth and that exact reality. He did it then and he can do it again. This verse isn't saying the things that you've done or, or the things that have been done to you are good, but we have a God that is so good. We have a God that is so glorious that he can redeem the darkest of nights. This is the essence of Joseph's perspective towards his siblings. You guys remember this this circumstance that kind of happened to Joseph, you know, where his siblings sold him into slavery? And in, in hindsight, he was confidently able to say, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The evil things that the evil one may, may put in your plate, may put circumstantially in your life, God intends to turn it to good. At this point in our walk through Romans, there's a section that I kind of skipped there after verse 28, and it's kind of controversial, but many questions about predestination arise. And I would say Romans chapter 9, 11 deal more fully with these issues, but for the moment... <clears throat> Let's remember Paul's main point here. I kind of want to lay that out. It's not to raise the 
like determinism versus free will controversy, which is kind of a more philosophical question, but rather, this is what Paul is stating. He's stating firmly that we must face life, not only our troubles, but our own personal sin with towering, infallible confidence. We can be confident that we have been foreknew, predestined, are justified, will be glorified. The almighty God of the universe has purposed to make us perfectly holy and glorious and literally nothing can thwart God's purposes for us. Nothing can. It's, it's been our calling and it's, and it's been destined that he will redeem you and I. He foreknew it, he predestined it, he called us to it, he justified, justified us for it, and he promises that one day we will live fully in the glory of that. But let me just say there is also a danger here. Many people in history have ran with this and said, great, God has chosen me for heaven, so I'm gonna live like hell. That is the danger that we have with this. You can have unwavering confidence, but may this drive us even more fully into the holiness that God invites us into. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, ultimately, the proof of a right approach to these doctrines is that you find them in them the greatest urge to holiness and sanctification. That is the key there. If your belief of the, these doctrines has not driven you to holiness, you are in a dangerous condition. You are misusing them to say, well, all is right with me. It matters not, therefore, what I do. I am saved. No one can truly see these doctrines without being humbled. I think that's a beautiful approach there. May the truth that God has chosen you, that he's redeemed you, that he's called you, may that drive you even deeper into your calling as you pursue him. And then we're gonna shift gears a touch as we touch on the, the finishing part here. Romans chapter eight, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? What things? What has been said? What, what things? That, that, that we are sons and daughters. What should we say about this? That our suffering will be redeemed. That our bodies will be redeemed. That we will be set free from the, the dysfunction and the frustration and the decay of this world. What, what should we say about the fact that God has called us? The verse continues. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And the rhetorical and the emphatic answer here is no one. He is the main point, no one. He, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give all things? If he did that for his son, he'll do it for you. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Again, no one is gonna do that. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one, Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Praise the Lord for that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall do that? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written in the Psalms, for, for, you, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither 
death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, I want you to go back later this week and read that and soak that in. But because of Christ, you are a conqueror and then some. Currently, right now, over your circumstance, over what's going on in your life, you are a victor and then some. And it's been promised and declared. You are a champion and then some. We aren't living to finally one day experience victory. We are living day in and day out from the position of victory right this moment. Whether you're in your living room with your family, you're driving in your car from work, wherever you're at, you are a victor and then some. This is the confidence that we can have when it comes to Christ. This is your destiny. This is your calling. This is your purpose. Imagine the type of people that we might become over time when Romans chapter eight becomes the charter and the pursuit of our lives, when, when we face the giants of life and approach them saying, I am already more than a conqueror in Christ. In a time that feels so defeating, I know some of you are in this place. I'm there with you. So defeating, we need this truth on repeat in our minds and in our lives. Your story is not over. Difficulties are here, but take heart because the best is yet to come.